Hey, Jerry. Hey, J-Rob. How are you? <laughs> I am good. Excellent. You know what time it is? I do know what time it is. What time is it? Not for Jerry, J-Rob. Cover it all. It is that time again, and uh, I'm happy to be sitting here with a a prize winning almost world famous uh, chili contender j rob won first place today at the main street baptist church chili cook-off it's pretty phenomenal yes by the way. It, it is a, a very uh prestigious award yes um coveted by at least four people four or five That's people right. yeah right. <laughs> it's excellent in anticipation of winning this here chili cook-off trophy i wore my most open shirt that i could find i just didn't have a gold necklace to go with oh it today. okay <laughs> but yeah that's that's what happened today so we have a guest uh yes mr dale duncan is here with us today hello how you doing dale i am well <laughs> well we're glad to have you with us today so and... i've never done it podcast before so well that makes two of us no we've done a few of them <laughs> we've done a few of them but uh yeah we uh I, I understand that you you and i have just met but you've known justin for quite some time yes. uh how long have you known each other Ooh, i want to say probably at least 15 years at least we are almost to 20 you're almost to 20 can you believe that wow Time has gone by, has it not? It has. And, and, and I think probably why I look at like 15 is probably right. because you've had assignments that took right. you away from the people. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, so uh, Dale has, uh, was an officer when I became an officer and uh, then promoted. And then, you know, paths go different ways and different things like that. But we've worked together on and off throughout the years. And uh, it's been a, been a great asset to the Georgetown Police Department. But uh, I, I had asked him to come on the show, and you may be asking why. Well, f the first thing I want to say is that uh, the fact that you know this guy, I want you to know I'm not going to hold that against you. Okay? Thank you. That's, a lot of people and, say that. That's a common, <laughs> a common sentiment. That's reassuring. Yeah. But uh, so, so introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about yourself. And then uh, I understand you have a, a very interesting story of kind of uh, some things that happened to you as a young man and that brought you where you are today and we want to hear all about it okay so i am dale duncan uh born in houston texas uh to deaf parents uh, my parents divorced when i was 13 but we moved from Houston to California. My father became a union uh, typesetter in the newspaper uh, business. And so being a union member uh, of, of the typesetter union, uh, he would sometimes get laid off. So as a result, I'd get moved around quite a bit. So we lived in Southern California until I was like nine. And then we had to go to Northern California, to the San Francisco area, Oakland, specifically to the, uh, where he would work at the Oakland Tribune as a typesetter. Uh, Oakland was a really hard adjustment for me because Oakland uh, is a high crime city, mm -hmm. uh, but my father needed to be close to his job. And so, uh, I remember the seventh grade and noticing all the high fences and it didn't look like a typical school that you would see in Southern California. It looked like a prison. And there were policemen going up and down the hallways of this middle school in Oakland. And so that took a little getting used to. And, uh, uh, I asked my mom and dad, I said, look, I, I can't go to this school. They're going to beat me up every day. It's just, it's just not good. And they said, well, maybe we'll use one of our friends' address in Berkeley, and we'll, 
we'll move you to the city of Berkeley. And so I went to a school, I finished middle school at Berkeley, which uh, I can't even remember the name of the middle school, but uh, it was much better there. It had actually moved from uh, the Oakland area across the mountains to a community called Walnut Creek. So as I went into the eighth and ninth grade, uh, I was in Walnut Creek. Um, my parents, uh, you know, he, he did the long commute so that uh, I could be in a safer community. And I have a sister that's four years younger than me, and so it was good for us to get to a safer uh, area. So when we moved to Walnut Creek, we hadn't been there very long. And I had a neighbor that was uh, a Hispanic family, neighbors, and their son, I didn't know it at the time. When you first move into an apartment complex, you want to be, you know, friends. And right. So I got to know him. His, his first name was Cliff. Um, he had a Hispanic name. It's been so many years, I don't even remember. Uh, but he was really, you know, he befriended me. It was great. You know, I, uh, we both went to the same school. I think maybe he was a year maybe even two, because he had been held back. Uh, but I didn't know how really aggressive he was until a short time later. There was some cute little girl in the complex, and she was kind of sweet on me, and I didn't know it was such a sensitive topic for him, because he cared about this little girl. He was sweet on her. Apparently. <laughs> and so I, I just wanted to be friends with everybody. It didn't matter. Um, but apparently it mattered to him. So anyway, he comes to me one day early in the morning as we're going to school. And he says, Dale, let's skip. Let's skip. Let's stay home. I'm like, I've never done that before. But he goes, yeah, we'll take our lunch money. We'll go to the donut shop. We'll come over here. We'll watch TV. It'll be great. Well, he talked me into it. His apartment was right next to my apartment, and they were townhome-style uh, apartments. And uh, we're walking back from the bus stop, and I run into my sister. And my sister's like, why didn't you get on the bus? And I'm telling her, hey, I'm, I'm going to stay home. Don't tell mom and dad. <laughs> and so she's like, oh. I said, I'll give you these donuts. Just don't <laughs> tell. So... And that bribe worked? Uh, the bribe, no, it didn't no. work at all. But for the moment it did, because yeah. she had to get on a bus, too, to go to her school. So she got the donuts, and I watched her leave, and we went on to the apartment, or the townhome-style apartment, right next to mine. Remember, I have deaf parents. My mother's at home. My dad's at work at the Oakland Tribune. And uh, it was really cool. I'm home. I'm not in class. It's the first time I've ever done it. And he says to me, I got to show you something. I'm like, okay. So he goes upstairs and he brings down a paper sack. But it wasn't, it wasn't too flimsy. It was kind of a, a firm, almost, almost like cardboard. It was, uh -huh. it, it was movable, but, and he brings it down to the coffee table and he takes it out and it's, it's a gun in a holster. I'm like, oh, wow. He goes, yeah, it's my dad's. This is cool. So he takes it out of the holster, and there's bullets in the bag. He takes the bullets out and puts them down. And he starts dry firing. The, it's a 38 pistol. He's dry firing it, and, and I'm like, wow, that's, that's really cool. The only experience I ever had with a handgun prior to that was... Uh, my uncle here in Texas, who was a big firearms guy, and he'd take me to the range, and I spent the whole time going like this. So I didn't, you know, I was just a kid. Right. And he says, Cliff says to me, hey, man, I'm going to put bullets in it. I said, look, Cliff, it's cool and all, but if you put bullets in that gun, I'm leaving. He puts them in anyway. One bullet, he puts it in there. 
closes it up. He's like messing around with the gun. And I'm like, I told you, I'm going to leave. I don't, I don't like guns. I'm going to leave. So he gets uh, real aggressive with me. He's like, you're such a, you know, lots of expletives, lots of right. stuff. And, and I'm like, man, just stop, put it away. No, I'm not going to do that. So his, his, and I didn't know the, his personality prior to this, but he would go from cordial friendly to evil. Just, it didn't take him long. He'd just rise up and be angry. And so he was in the angry mode. And I'm like, I'm leaving. I am leaving. We were on an L-shaped couch. He was on one side, I was on the other. And he took that pistol and he cocked it back and shot me. And it was at the same time that I was turning. And so he hit me here and it came out. Well, it came right to the edge of the skin here. It didn't come out. When the doctor removed the bullet, it was literally like, take the bullet. So it went in one side and almost all completely the out the other. All wow. the way through. So I fell back in my chair, the couch, and he's looking at me with this deer in the headlights look like, oh, wow, you know, oh, my God. So I'm like, when I could get my breath back, because it took every bit of the air out of my lungs, I said, Cliff, get me some help. And he goes, oh, man. He goes up the stairs, puts the gun away, wherever, wherever it was, comes down and jets out the front door. Is he going to get me some help? I have no idea. He doesn't speak to me. He just runs. When he runs, he doesn't quite close the door. Door's cracked a little bit. So my mom's next door, hearing impaired. She hears nothing, but we had a little dog, a toy poodle named Tina, cute as can be. <laughs> Tina heard that discharge, probably heard me too, because you know how good dog's hearing is. Right. Probably heard me too, but he, she kept, Tina kept going to the front door. And my mother thought, she must need to go to the bathroom. Tina's so well-trained, you could just open the front door. She'd find a little spot and come right back. Well, this time she went out the door and went immediately to where I was. And the door wasn't shut all the way. So she was able to come in where I was. And of course, my mother is now embarrassed. She's not, she's like, oh my God, my dog went to somebody else's house. So. My mom sees the back of my head on the L-shaped couch. And she is deaf, but she has perfectly good vocal cords. And she doesn't, uh, when my name through her vocal cords are, is Dow, she, she doesn't say uh, words like someone right, who's here. Right. So, Dow, and I looked at her, turned and looked at her and I said, mom, I love you. I don't want to die. Oh my God. She rounded the corner and she saw the blood. Cliff was long gone. He had taken off running. She runs out the door. She sees the apartment complex grounds person. The grounds person I learned later said, I thought I heard fireworks. And so I was out here looking. Well, my mom got his attention, got him into me. And of course, the rest was, you know, call medical. Uh, two detectives uh, actually came there uh, and got a minimal information from me and just spun on their heels and went looking for Cliff. And they actually found him. He was still running, <laughs> still going. So uh, my mom myself we got loaded into the ambulance she forgot her purse which had all the insurance stuff she sells in white and she grabs her purse and away we go uh, to a hospital there uh, in walnut creek called kaiser that was a so i get there to the hospital i stay awake the whole time 
I'm, I'm talking to my mom in sign language. They rush me into the uh, ER. They start taking uh, x-rays. You know, literally, I'm on a bed, and this x-ray machine is they're trying to find out where the bullet is and, and, and rush me into surgery. So from, from the emergency room, I don't have a memory past what they were doing to me in the emergency room. I don't know whether they sedated me a little bit or, or what happened. But my mom, uh, uh, I guess she took a cab. I don't know the details. But she went and got my sister in the car. And then she came back with my sister uh, to the hospital. I was in surgery for over eight hours. And they would come out and give uh, my mom periodic updates you know he's he's still with us but it's 50 50 he'll he'll either make it or he won't so it did a tremendous amount of damage it hit my liver kidney gall spleen gall bladder spleen intestines pretty much all the way through yeah and so uh as i'm in the hospital recovering uh I was kept unconscious for at least three days. So I remember seeing that. And I spent two weeks in ICU. Uh, I had to learn to walk again. I was, I was probably at least a month laid out on a bed. 13 years old, you're, in the, you're basically laid up in the hospital for a month or more. Yeah. How, how long was your recovery in total? Well, when I left the hospital, I weighed 70 pounds. So I was, and there was a, there was routine doctor visits. And, and the doctor told me, he said, if we don't get all of this stuff working right, there's a strong possibility that we're gonna have to give you a colostomy. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what that was until he explained it to right. me that I'll have bowel movements into a sack on right. my side. And I remember telling the doctor, if if that's what it's going to be, I don't want to live. Right. So, but anyway, it didn't end up being that. Uh, life went on. I uh, did not want to be in California anymore mm -hmm. at all. So from from there we came to texas all right where'd you land at uh my grandmother's house in south austin okay the, uh, so, High School. so you moved to south austin living with uh with your grandmother and and going to school there seemed like a much better environment than than where you came from yeah and so now you're uh you know you're you're growing up uh what year did you graduate high school 76 76 so you graduated high school before I was even born. <laughs> you look good. Well, it does look good. I wouldn't. I'm, I wouldn't have guessed that you I'm, were uh, that I'm old. Sixty-three. Yeah. So. Well, you don't look sixty-three. You don't. Well, you don't. That's a that's a fine compliment. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, so tell us a little bit about what you what you do now. And let me ask you: Did did your experience as a young man have any weight in the decision to get in the field that you're in today? It's interesting that you say that because I thought, you know, what is it that Dale's good at? And what I was good at was sign language because my parents were deaf. And so one of my first jobs out of high school was the Austin State Hospital Children's Psychiatric Unit uh, as an aide. They got the sign language for free. <laughs> I worked as an aide. And so there was a high turnover rate because they didn't pay well. The kids had a lot of problems. Mm -hmm. And so at that time that I got hired there, there was four deaf kids. Uh, two of them were girls, two of them were boys. And they were divided up into different areas of the psychiatric unit. And so they would call me in and say, hey, uh, we're going to, uh, I'll call her Helen. The deaf girl, Helen, has an appointment today with her psychiatrist, so we'd like you to sit in and interpret. So they had a great thing, an interpreter for the four kids. When I wasn't doing that, I was on the, on the uh, 
adolescent or, or on the boys side from like 12 to 16 mm -hmm. which was an experience let me tell you something <laughs> oh my god uh but anyway the deaf one of the deaf boys that was on the the boys unit uh, he was a fantastic artist but he had whatever issues that he had he was very aggressive uh he you if he didn't if you didn't understand him like someone who doesn't know sign language mm -hmm. if he got frustrated with you he would start attacking you he would fight you so anyway the doctors there at the unit didn't know how best to treat arthur and his skills was not necessarily academics but he was just determined he's going to be an artist and so his drawings were wonderful for his age. He was probably 14, maybe. Great artist. And so using sign language and, and developing a bond with Arthur, I was able to keep him from being so aggressive. And so a, a, a brief story, he earned an outing. Arthur earned an outing where he would get to go somewhere. You know, they would earn privileges, like to go to the movies or whatever. And the aides would take them to wherever. So I took him to a bowling alley by, uh, it's a it's a high school right there off of Koenig Lane. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. But there's a bowling alley right next to it, right next to the football field. So anyway, long story short, some kids got to bowl. Arthur didn't care anything about bowling, but what he did was he went to the pinball machines and saw the, the muscle men and the, the artwork that was on the pinball machines, and he went nuts. He was like, I, I need paper and pencil. I want to draw this. Well, we didn't have time that day. We had to get, the, I, you know, it was spread pretty thin. We had to do this. So Arthur. That was a tool that I had in my toolbox for Arthur to earn the privilege to go back, and I was going to let him draw. Right. You know, so he had great behavior for the next couple of weeks and earned another outing. And I'm like, okay, we'll take you over there, and you can draw. Well, when we get there, it's lunchtime at the high school, and the high school's campus was open. So a lot of the kids would go there and play pinball machines and eat at the snack bar at the bowling alley. And he wanted to draw those pictures so bad, but the kids were like, hey, get out of here, you know. And he wanted to put his paper right on the top of the pinball machine. And I, I, I was telling the kids, look, man, he's gonna fight if he doesn't get to draw. And so I said, just let him draw, use another machine. You know, and they did. They went on. He got to draw. So that experience for me at the Austin State Hospital, it was something else. It was, uh, but but the problem is I got the intensity of the problems that the kids had, I would take with me when I got off work. And so I started drinking just so I could sleep at night because some of the stories that they would tell and some of the problems that they had, I couldn't get it out of my mind, you know, like uh, like a physical abuse or, or sexual abuse or whatever it was going through this poor kid's mind that ended him up at the Austin State Hospital. And there were interesting stories. That was my experience. Now, part of the problem was it didn't pay enough, okay? And so I thought I was, John Travolta and Urban Cowboy. I had to go to Nickel Beer Night at uh, at the Silver Dollar and ride the electric bull. I thought it was all of that. So anyway, I needed to make more money. So my aunt worked at DPS, and she was a, a pretty well high-ranking DPS person she, in administration. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I'm telling my aunt, you know, I need to. She goes, well, do you want to come to work for DPS? And I said, well, what could I do? Oh, well, I'll get you a job in the maintenance department. And so she actually got me a job. 
in the maintenance department. And I worked my way into being an assistant electrician and, and thought that that's what I was destined to be the rest of my adult career was be an electrician's helper. And what, what age are you at this point? At this point, I started December 3rd, 1980, and I was 21. Okay. And so I'm working at DPS headquarters, an electrician's helper, and the head of data processing at that time down in the computer room was a big hunter. And I'm a big hunter too. My uncle and I would go to Colorado and hunt every year and so this guy's name was philip bear we hunted the same area as a matter of fact i even saw him out there when i was hunting one year i was like philip but anyway so i knew philip through me being an electrician's helper doing work down in data processing and he said why don't you why don't you come to work for me i said i don't know anything about computers i know how to hook them up that's it he said we'll teach you and so I went to work in data processing from the maintenance shop. Got a little bit of a raise, felt pretty good. I met uh, my wife Fawn and uh, we got married January 24th of 81. And uh, she was my bride for 33 years. But anyway, electrician's helper. Then I got moved over to data processing. Uh, I did that for eight years for a total at EPS of 17 years. Okay. And then you moved on. How'd you get, how did you move on from there? So I wanted to be a police officer and I told my wife, I want to become a trooper. And the college requirement was not there for if you, if you joined Capitol police, I didn't have a, a four-year degree. I didn't even have a two-year degree. Right. And so I applied but didn't get it. And I told my wife, I'm dying a slow death of boredom here in this <laughs> computer room. I, I need to, to do something. How about if I apply at some of the local police departments like Round Rock or... So I got enrolled in CAPCOG, went through that academy, self-sponsored, Graduated from there, put my applications out. I was still working at DPS. This was a night school uh, through CAPCOG, right. Academy Class 10. Uh, and put out my resumes to Williamson County Sheriff's, Georgetown Police, and Round Rock Police, and all three of them made me job offers, which I thought was kind of cool. That is cool. The only thing I knew about Georgetown at the time was they had a really cute little park where I'd take my kids to play in the park, you know, and the rest is history. So what, what year is this that you started? I started January 11th of 97. 97. So you're going along, I'm, I'm sure as with, with many officers, they all have things that have happened, funny, sad, yeah. horrible, all sorts of, um, emotional times and and yeah. uh, scenarios things that you'll never forget some things you don't remember and uh, that's the nature of it right yeah so if i can um and you'll have to remind me the year because i don't remember the year but it was halloween or thereabouts yes and i typically worked a specific district and for that evening i happened to be out and I was on sick leave because I had a kid in the hospital yeah. that we were dealing with. And I got a phone call about something that had taken place. And it was a pretty traumatic event. And um, the, the initial parts of it were, you know, loose information about a shooting officer involved shooting. And then I learned that it was you that was there that, that had handled that situation along with some detectives. Um, but the, the way it played out was interesting along with who responded was interesting and, and, um, the lives that were saved and then how it came to a conclusion. Um, but I'd like for you to tell us about that and you can start right there, you know, from the moment you got the call. So it was Halloween night, 2011. Um, 
you were gone, Ray, uh, Officer, or excuse me, yeah, Wyatt Rayleigh uh, was assigned your district. But Wyatt uh, was on lunch. He had taken his lunch. And so a call came in uh, saying, and the notes were uh, from the dispatch to the police radios was, someone is saying someone's dead there. Well, it wasn't that, it was a fellow was hurting their mother. And so dispatch is just giving us what they can. It's choppy, we don't know much. And I just said, well, I'll be in route code. And so I start going and I'm listening. Uh, they say this caller's on 911 and his mother needs help. Well, two detectives were doing sex offender checks in the neighborhood to make sure that sex offenders weren't offering candy to kids. The rule is if you're, you're a registered sex offender on Halloween night, right. you turn your lights off, you shut the door, you don't receive visitors. And so those two detectives were right there in the area where this call was. We didn't know what we had other than it sounded violent. And so we're getting there. Detectives get there probably just a few moments before I get there. So I'm cautiously going and I arrive to the front yard and the kids are all out in the front yard. And they're crying, they're upset, and there's a teenage a, a boy that's like 15 and one that's like 12 and then one that's like eight. And then there's a little tiny two-year-old that they're controlling. And, they, and I, as I come running up, they said, thank you. I'm like, okay. So I go up to the, the two detectives are in the living room and they're yelling down the hallway. Well, I learned later, boldest boy with a butcher knife at the master bedroom door, just trying to get in there. The door was locked. Uh, his mother was in there with her, uh, I guess you call it estranged live-in former person. They were, I don't think they were ever really married, but they had that two-year-old child together. But she couldn't get along with this guy. This guy was, uh, Anthony Ray Blackman was a uh, Travis County jailer for 14 years and he had uh, been terminated because of his attitude. Um, so Anthony was in that room with uh, the kid's mother. I can't, I can't think of her name right now, but anyway, they're in there and it is a knockdown, drag out fight going on in there. They're screaming, they're fighting, and, and Bill Pasco and, and Ron Price are in the living room, so I just joined them. They had their guns out, they're pointing down the hallway. I'm with them, and uh, I said, okay. We start hailing this guy. Hey, come out, come out with your hands up. We hear mumbling back there. We don't know what was clearly said or not, but anyway, there's mumbling going on back there. So we start to go down the hallway. We're gonna approach that bedroom. Both of their guns are drawn, so I decide I'm gonna go with a less lethal taser. Well, they have cameras on them at that time. And so I've got the camera, uh, I've got the taser. You can see the, the, the laser pointing along the wall as we're headed to that room. So we approach the door, they've got their guns drawn, the door's locked, I can't open it. So I just take a step back and kicked the door. Well, when I kicked the door, I fell forward one step into the room. Being one step into the room, I looked down literally right there is Anthony Ray Blackman and he's got this woman with her own arm so tightly around her, she's being choked with her own arm and she's nude. And I didn't see the gun at the time, but then as the door comes open, it swings open. He disengages from her. All he has is a boxer's arm. He disengages from her and starts scooting on his bottom, on his butt, and he's firing a Glock into her chest. 
he just opens up and shoots her 14 times in rapid succession. Wow. And I had the taser in my hand, and it just discharged out of just fear. Just, ah. Detective Pasco's to my right. Price is to my left. Detective Pasco sends three rounds towards him. It is literally right at my ear level. He is pow, pow, pow. Guy's still scooting. So I realized I brought a taser to a gunfight at about that time. And so I just threw it, drew uh, my weapon and uh, thought that I'd be the third one in. We're going to take care of business. It didn't happen. They stayed out. So this poor woman is right there in front of me. And the bad guy is to the left and around a, a little corner to a, the way the bathroom is, is to the bathroom, but there's a sink and a mirror. Mm -hmm. And that is before you go to the second part of that bathroom where there's a toilet and a bathtub. So he was around that corner. And so nobody's doing anything. It's just a few moments. I said, well, so I did, did this with my elbow to Bill, like, don't shoot me. I'm going to move forward. And so I start moving forward, and I start to pie that, and I see his feet. His feet are right there. So I realize his body's got to be right there. And so as I'm pieing, I'm firing. And I shot him nine times. It was like in snapshots because I was so scared. And we'll talk about what your body does when you're afraid. Yeah. I was scared to death. So I get done firing my nine rounds. He is a bloody mess. He is flat on his back. I literally holster up and I have got to grab him. And, and put handcuffs on him. The gun is now down, it's away from him. He's not holding it anymore. So I start handcuffing him and getting him in position. Bill Pasco by that time has come in with me and he's like, can you hear me? He's yelling to this guy and, and I'm, and he says, be careful, Dale. And so the gun, I take the gun and we put it on a, a stand on, on a dresser drawer over there. And so we get him handcuffed, and then I'm just a bloody mess after doing this. So I wash off my hands at the sink right there. And Bill is still trying to talk to this guy. And he finally answers Bill and says, and Bill says, can you hear me? And he says, yes. But that's the last living thing that he said was yes. Hmm. And so I, we turn to the, to the victim. And I'm like, ma'am, I'm going to try to help you to breathe. She was, she was too far gone. She was, she was done. Um, so after that had concluded, um, you know, you, you've got these kids, you got a lot of chaos going on. That scene finally resolves itself. It finally gets under control, right? Then how did you feel the following days? How did you get through some of that? Cause that's, that's usually a pretty hard thing for most people. Yeah, it, it really was. So from that point on, once the scene was secured, he was transported. Uh, he was already gone, but anyway, they transported him to a hospital. They, they would not, the, the emergency room physician who was on the phone would not, with right. the medics said, no, bring him in. Right. So they brought him in. So anyway, they took uh, myself, Bill, and Ron, kept us together, and said, we're going to take you to the PD. The department itself was very supportive. They didn't say, oh, you've, you, you guys need to be apart. You, you know, n none of that. Uh, they, they were very supportive. I don't know, you know, if it was a questionable shoot, mm -hmm. how it would have been handled. Right, right. But I was, felt very supportive. The events of that night played like a broken record right. for me for three days. I couldn't sleep. It just kept going. Kept reliving it kept thinking, what could I have done differently? What? And uh, if it weren't for my wife, I don't, I'd probably still be a mess. And they sent all three of us to see a psychiatrist, uh, APD psychiatrist, uh, 
uh, to check us out, see where we're at. And so the psychiatrist, a short time later, said, what kind of coping mechanism did you use to deal with what you've been through? And I said, well, I just talked to my wife. <laughs> I, I, you know, that was it. I, I couldn't talk about it to fellow officers. Right. They actually said, you cannot discuss this with anybody right. except clergy, your wife, right. your attorney. Those are the three. That's it. So she was pretty supportive and helped you through a lot of that. I know a lot of people wanted to come talk to you, but weren't allowed to. And that's kind of how the nature of the beast goes. It's not, it's not set up very well to handle the mental part of it uh, for a yeah. follow-up. But you had a supportive wife, and, um, and she ended up having some medical issues later yeah. on. And can you, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. My dear wife, Fawn Marie Duncan, uh, was diagnosed with a very rare ovarian cancer. Uh, only 12 other cases of that particular type of ovarian cancer had ever been observed in, in the world. And when we went, it was actually, we were actually there for the birth of our granddaughter. We were in New Mexico. She was in so much pain that I was going to take my wife over to the ER of the hospital where our granddaughter was being born because of the pain she had. She's like, no, I'm just constipated. I'll be all right. <laughs> well, she wasn't all right. And so I was working nights at the time and I go out in my backyard. My wife was loved to work in the yard. That was something relaxing for her. So she was raking and I come out the back door and she goes, you have to take me to the doctor. I said, okay. I thought it meant her, her primary care doctor. And so what ended up happening was she said, uh, no, take me to the emergency room. So I took her there and at St. David's here in Georgetown and they took her back for a, a x-ray and they found a tumor, a very large tumor on her ovaries that was the size of a football. And so uh, from there, uh, we stayed within the St. David's Hospital group and saw uh, a uh, specialist in the area of cancer and gynecological areas specifically. And this, this doctor was really wonderful he said, we're going to do the surgery, we're going to take the tumor, and uh, it should be okay. That's what I thought. Well, it wasn't okay. Because he sent some samples of the tumor itself to, M not MD Anderson, but the Mayo Clinic mm -hmm. up in like a northern state like Minnesota or something like that. The Mayo Clinic sent the results back and said, this is extremely rare. And so the doctor saw us and the doctor said, look, I don't even know how to treat this type of cancer. Would you mind if we reach out to a, a, to a group of cancer doctors about this? And of course, we said, yes, talk to whoever you need. Uh, this is serious. And he right. said, yeah. So what ended up happening is he came up with a, a kind of a cocktail of different uh, chemicals uh, to treat her uh, chemotherapy-wise. And he told us even then, back then, he said, look, this is so caustic that I'm putting in her veins. And they had to get a report. Mm -hmm. They said, this is so caustic that we actually have to treat her veins before we put this in. And uh, so they used some sort of pretreatment IV and then the, the chemicals itself. And uh, she went underwent, un, uh, went, underwent that chemo for quite a while. She got to ring the bells, you know, when your chemo was done, but it wasn't done. The cancer wasn't done. It just took off even more aggressively mm -hmm. after she stopped that regimen. And uh, it's funny because I asked her, it's not funny, but it's, it's interesting that I asked her, 
because the doctor flat out told her, you, you have a year. And I said to her, what, what's on your bucket list? What, what would you like to do? She said, uh, I'd like to see the whales. Well, whale watching tours. They offer those. That's great. <laughs> so I talked to Evelyn McLean. At that time, she was, I guess, a lieutenant, maybe a captain. I don't know. No, I think she was a lieutenant then. She got promoted. But I talked to Evelyn, and Evelyn McLean is one of those. She's a really a good Christian, but she really stepped up. She goes, we're going to have a fundraiser so that she can see the whales. And we're going to have a pancake breakfast. Did you? We did. Yep. Yeah. So we had this pancake breakfast at Applebee's, and I thought to myself, oh, my God, we're not going to raise any money. This is not. We filled and emptied Applebee's three times. Wow. At the end of that day, they just put this pile of money in my hand. And I said, we're going to the uh, travel agent. Told them what we wanted. We wanted to take a cruise that would take us to the whales, you know. And so she found uh, Princess Cruises, and we took a Princess Cruise out of Seattle. All the airfare, there was enough money to do everything. Where yeah. we, we even had a, uh, a balcony room, you know. I just, there you go. So we did the, the cruise all the way and went into Ketchikan, then Juneau, then Skagway, and then we came back into Victoria, Canada. But when we were in Juneau, it's an interesting story, but Juneau had the whale watching cruise. And so it's a different boat. So you, you take a bus over to the excursion, which is whale watching. You get on this yeah. smaller boat. It pulls away from the dock. People are excited. They're going to see whales. And the captain of the boat says, oh, uh, you know, he threw the intercom. Welcome. Uh, under federal law, we cannot harass the whales. We have to stay at least 100 yards away. Oh, yeah. And so they're protected. And so we thought to ourselves, okay. So How we, are you supposed to see whales 100 yards away? Yeah, so she's sitting at the edge of the boat. Five of the biggest whales. It's almost like, do you want to see the whales? Yeah. They came up beside the boat so close that you could smell their breath. Oh, wow. Okay. And... They come up and then they collapse back down into the water. She was thrilled. She was so happy. She was, she got to see the whales. Yeah. And so, um, but that was our, our trip. We saw some glaciers, the Mendenhall Glacier in Juneau, Alaska. We, uh, you know, it was, it was really good for her. So oh, we're starting to run a little short on time. Okay. Um, so you guys came back unfortunately the in, the inevitable took place um yeah. so what kind of got you through some of that well i don't think you ever get over it or get completely through it um i after about six months or so i, I tried doing dating things and it was just i hadn't really been out in the bar scene or right. chasing women scene <laughs> since John Travolta was right. the urban cowboy. Right. And so it was completely different. <coughs> so I found a, a, a dating website and I didn't know anything about it. I thought, well, it was advertised on the radio. Well, I went to the office there and they charged you like $1,500. They run criminal history checks on you and they they try to match you with people and they have these group gatherings where mm -hmm. you can socialize and so at one of those group gatherings is where i met my current fiance cindy very good and so cindy was really not even a member of in the loop but in the loop didn't have enough pretty women to go it's all a bunch of old men <laughs> so they started recruiting in the wrong loop there yeah, it, was a, it wasn't a good loop at first. <laughs> so, but anyway, Cindy was there, and she was 
pretty much the prettiest girl in the room, and I just had to go talk to her. Okay. And all right. The rest is history. The rest is history. So, um, with all that said, you know, you, you, you've had a lot of turmoil in life. You've had a lot, yes. of, a lot of things that have come up, a lot of um, extreme circumstance. What would you tell somebody that's been through something like that? Through the loss of a, a Any, anything. life partner? Loss of tragedy. What, what has kind of helped you? Well, I think what was a coping mechanism for me was my children, my daughters. I have two daughters. They're 11 months apart. Uh, and then the grandchildren. My, my children rallied around me. So family. You know? And remember, they took it hard, too. Right. So we had, we just spent time together. We right. just do that. And for me, <coughs> excuse me, I, I just work. Yeah. Go to work. I had a supportive agency. Yeah. <coughs> Real good people like yourself uh, to get through it. Well, well, that is good. That is good. That's that's a pretty phenomenal story all the way around. Most people would not incur one of those issues throughout their entire life, and you've you've dealt with four or five major things that have gone on. So, congratulations to you for making it through that and and being the guy that you are. Um, thanks for being here today, Dale. I appreciate it. I appreciate you opening up, being vulnerable with us. It's uh, that's nothing that's nothing easy, but we 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 do appreciate it, and uh, hopefully have something next week. Anything else, Jerry? You know, I, I, I'm sitting here listening to everything you've been through and just, just can't even fathom, you know, having to deal with all of that. Um, you know, being shot, being having to learn to, to walk all over again, and, uh, you know, just, just the, the multiple things that, that you have experienced in your life. And, you know, I just want to reiterate the sentiment, you know, it's amazing that you you've been able to get through it and, and do well. I think Thank there's you. I think there's more to your story, <laughs> and uh, I, I, you know I'd like to to hear more of it, and so maybe we can get you back on uh, on another podcast. All right, it's been my pleasure. I've never done this before, but I have no problem talking. <laughs> I can sell sand you, to the air. You can you, uh, you can it. talk a little bit. You can talk a little. Bit. All right, Dale. I appreciate you being here. Thank you very much, and uh, we'll catch you guys next week. Oh,